pray, God, that the, the thoughts, the comments that I've prepared would honor your word and be truthful and faithful to it. And, and more than anything, God, we just ask that your spirit would speak to us each one. Uh, for we know that it is an incredible, incredible privilege to be able to hear from you, the living God. So may we hear from you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are talking today about the toxic habit of comparing. So a parent goes to a teacher conference and the parent asks, how's my kid doing? And the teacher says, well, I'd say about average. Your kid's kind of right in the middle of the pack, about average. And then the parent goes to the soccer coach, how's my kid doing? The soccer coach says, well, you know, your, your kid's about average. Half of them are better and half of them are worse. And uh, then they go to the kid's SAT tutor who specializes in preparing seven-year-olds for the SAT test. <laughs> How's my kid doing? Well, I, I think you can expect your, your kid to be about at that 50 percentile, you know, right in there. And uh, what are the odds, do you think, that this parent in the Denver metro area responds by saying, great, oh, that's great, I've got just a normal kid. My kid is right in the middle of God's special bell curve. What do you think? Not likely. It's not likely. Uh, it turns out when we ask the question, how's my kid doing? There's this little rider attached to that question. Uh, always there's this, this back question, you know, how's my kid doing compared to the other kids? That's the underlying question there. We have a way of measuring our performance, even getting our identity, our value, and our worth by comparing ourselves to other people. This is just what we do. When I was in elementary school many, 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 many years ago, we got assigned into reading groups. I don't know if they still do that. But we would be put into reading groups and, uh, where you're obviously being compared to other kids, and uh, they would never, ever, ever tell you this, <clears throat> but we weren't stupid. We could tell how we were doing based on the group we were assigned in. Our groups were named after birds. You could be in the Eagles group, the Cardinals group, you know, the Robin group and the Pigeon group, that kind of thing. <laughs> and if you were assigned to the Pigeon group, <laughs> you, you knew you weren't exactly killing it in the reading category, right? Yeah. But it's a weird thing. It's actually a sad thing, too, that ever since the fall, ever since sin entered into us and into the world that we live in, we have a way of actually deriving our identity based on performance, based on value that we get from comparing ourselves to others. Interesting. Now, comparing, of course, is not a bad thing in and of itself. Uh, we learn a lot by comparing. It's inevitable. It's an inevitable part of learning. We learned that this box is bigger than this box by comparing, you know, the two boxes. Uh, we learn that a cheetah is faster than a turtle by comparing the two, right, and how they run. Uh, I can get a better deal on jewelry for Valentine's Day from Dollar General than I can from Tiffany's. I mean, you compare these things. We learn by comparing. But when I start to compare myself to another person, that's where my ego gets involved. Uh, my ego wants to be exalted over another person. I feel better when I'm exalted over another person. My ego feels like, you know, I'm going to be diminished if another person is somehow enhanced. Somehow that diminishes me, my ego thinks, my fallen ego. My ego doesn't want that, so I find myself envying. Uh, I find myself being jealous. 
of others who do better or achieve more than me. I also find myself feeling superior and feeling puffed up when I do better. And of course, all of this makes it very hard to do what we're commanded to do as people who follow Jesus, which is obviously love God and love our, our neighbors, because we see ourselves often very much, whether we would articulate it this way or not, very much in competition with our neighbors, let alone loving our enemies. Comparing is a pretty significant problem. Uh, let's just kind of illustrate this together. Um, we'll do a mass confession time here. If you've ever compared yourself to anybody else on the basis of looks, you're like, she's cuter than me, he's better looking than me, or compared your hair, your teeth, your physique, your intelligence, your grades, your GPA, put your hand up and keep it up. If you've ever compared your career to somebody else's career, slip your hand up. If you've ever compared your house to somebody else's house, slip your hand up. If you've ever compared your girlfriend, your boyfriend to that person's girlfriend or boyfriend, slip your hand up. If you've ever compared your spouse, said, honey, if you were just more like him or more like her, slip your hand up. You might want to leave as well. But, you know, if, you, if you've ever compared your kids to other kids, slip your hand up. Or compared your, uh, how you're doing as a parent to how others seem to be doing as a parent. See, now get them up, look them up, look around. This is a huge problem for us, isn't it? I mean, we just compare and compare and compare all the time. Um, and this can be really toxic. The effect of this kind of comparison, comparing ourselves to others in this manner, can be very, very toxic. We all want to know, you know, am I an eagle or am I a pigeon? Or, you know, am I something in between? Uh, this problem goes way, way back, as I already suggested, to the very, very beginning to Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. That sin happened, you understand, because the serpent got Adam and Eve to compare themselves to God. I want to be like God, and I'm not. See, that was a, a, a problem rooted and grounded in comparing. The very next sin that's recorded in the Bible involves a couple of brothers. You know this story. Many of you, Cain and Abel. Uh, this is what we read in Genesis 4. We read that uh, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The first thing we wonder when we read that, we kind of wonder, uh, you know, why Abel's offering was looked upon with favor and Cain's not so much. Most likely it has something to do with that word firstborn that we read. Uh, Abel offered some of the firstborn. We've talked about this before uh, when we've talked about giving or generosity or things like tithing, uh, that when we bring a tithe to God, we're not really giving a gift. We're actually giving God exactly what we owe. We bring our tithes to God because they belong to God. God loves it when we make giving and generosity a priority in our lives. So God teaches his people to give not just you know, randomly from what they have, but to take of the firstborn of their flock or from the first fruits of the crops that they harvest. In other words, take right off the top the very best and give a portion of that to God. And the first thing I say to God is, God, here's my tithe. This is just how I acknowledge to you that you, you love me, you provide for me, you, and, and this is yours, Lord. That's just part of making generosity a priority in my life. And apparently Abel does that, Cain doesn't. Apparently, Cain just brings maybe some of his harvest. We're not sure, not sure how much. 
We're not sure how representative it was. Was it the best? Was it not the best? Maybe not the best. The implication is he's doing it out of obligation or with a grudging heart. Uh, Abel experiences what it is that generosity does in a human heart. When we are generous, we are trusting God because we're giving up something that's ours. We're also trusting God to be our provider and, and recognizing that everything that we have comes from him. And so Abel lives in dependence on God, and God loves that, and God loves generosity because God himself is a generous God. Cain apparently shuts himself off from that whole dynamic in terms of a relationship with God. Cain sees this joy that his brother Abel has, and it just grates on him. It bothers him. And what's interesting to me is Cain gets angry, but not at himself. You know, he doesn't say, well, come on, Cain, you can do better than this. You can, you can have a, a closer relationship with God than this, nor does he get mad at God for that matter. He thinks if Abel wasn't around, I wouldn't be feeling this pain. And so he, he shifts blame to Abel, his brother. And so God comes and speaks to Cain. We read in Genesis 4 again, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it, God says. It's fascinating. God kind of plays the therapist here with Cain, begins asking him questions. Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? What's interesting to me is there is no dialogue here. Cain doesn't respond back. Cain doesn't have this dialogue with God. What happens for Cain is he, uh, he becomes even more angry, apparently, at his brother. He dehumanizes his brother. He stops seeing him as a brother and starts seeing his brother Abel as the problem. And the next verse is a world of hurt and a world of sin. It says that Cain says to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And you understand what's going on there. There's all kinds of deception going on there. Uh, here, Cain is deceiving his brother. Uh, he has to say this like he's proposing something good. Hey, brother, let, let's go out in the field together. And he has to control his expression and inflect his voice just right and make sure the body language isn't sending mixed messages. He has to deceive his brother. And it says, while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And so this theme of deception and falsehood and comparison runs through all of the human race, all of the history of the human race. Neil Plantinga, who's a philosopher and a theologian, wrote a wonderful book called A Breviary of Sin a few years back. And he tells the story of two young women growing up in Iowa, right? He calls them Cindy and Sonia. That's not their real names. I guess he's protecting their identity but he says, Cindy and Sonia, they're both lovely, lovely young ladies. Uh, they both grew up competing uh, against one another in beauty pageants and things like that. They knew each other in school and so. Cindy eventually became the Mist Harvest Queen, and uh, Sonia became Homecoming Queen. So, you know, sometimes one would win something or another one would. And they both ended up liking the same guy, a guy named Jim. Jim ultimately rejects, ultimately rejects Cindy and marries Sonia. And Cindy is festering inside. And it absolutely nearly kills her to see this opponent, as she views her, getting something that she wants. She couldn't stand it. And so she takes a leather belt, and one night, Miss Harvest Queen strangled Miss Homecoming Queen. And the whole town is shocked. 
at this murder. But you see here again, it's just another telling of the same old story. All through the human race, all through the Bible, there is this incredible toxicity to this thing of envy, this thing of jealousy, this, this hatred that comes with comparing ourselves to other individuals. It's the problem of you have what I want, whatever that is. And so two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, are estranged from each other. You might know that story. Then there's the next generation. There's Jacob and Esau, two brothers, estranged from each other. In Genesis 25, it says the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, that is his father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah, that is their mother, loved Jacob. A world of hurt in those words. Again, a deep, deep, deep hole or well of dysfunction there. And then there's uh, Joseph and his brothers, if you know that story. Uh, Lots of envy, lots of rivalry there. And this runs, this theme, all throughout Scripture. Another vignette involves the very first king of Israel, Saul. Uh, We're told that uh, in 1 Samuel 9 that Saul was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. I think that's comparison. A head taller than any of the others. I think that's comparison. And Saul becomes the king, and he later names David as one of his warriors, one of his leaders, a general David eventually becomes. And they go out to battle, and the battle goes really well. They defeat the Philistines. And this is what we read. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands and Saul was very angry this refrain galled him why why did it gall him it tells us they have credited David with tens of thousands he thought but me with only thousands both of them are exaggerations right did David actually kill ten thousands no did Saul kill no They're both just forms of speech. They've both been effective in battle. And so it says, he says, what more can he, David, get but the kingdom? My kingdom, Saul is thinking. What a vivid description. It goes on to say, and from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And what that's hinting at is that that everything that Saul sees David do now moving forward is colored by and filtered by this comparison and the the envy and the jealousy that's driven by that comparison. Saul keeps a jealous eye on David. What that's also suggesting is there's something very unhealthy going on here. Saul is not seeing David for who he really is because he sees him with a jealous eye. In comparison in that way, you know, when I start to get jealous, I look at you differently. I don't see my brother or my sister. I don't see somebody that I should love or care for. I don't see that. I just see the person who creates pain in me, and I become angry at you. You see how dysfunctional that is? You see how uh, that's uh, placing something on you that you haven't even created? See, Saul fears that something very precious is at risk. But understand, if he was walking with his God, if he was embracing the values that his God has given him to embrace, if he was living in the kingdom, so to speak, his kingdom would not be in jeopardy. 
See, nothing really precious is ever at risk when we are living in the kingdom of Jesus, when we are embracing the values of Jesus' kingdom. Nothing really precious is ever at risk, not even your life. Because if you lose your life here, you go directly to life there. You get something better. And that's just kind of how this works. Um, Why are you so angry, Saul? Well, I'm offended. They have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. Are you kidding me, Saul? Who's they? Well, you know, everybody. Well, Saul, you're the king for crying out loud. You're the man. David works for you. If David wins, you win. Why are you viewing it this way? Well, because he views them with a jealous eye. Saul is so consumed with envy that eventually, as you know, if you know this story, he tries to kill David. And of course, this is often the way it works out in life. The very thing that Saul fears most of all, which is the loss of his kingdom, is what ends up happening. Precisely because of his grasping, his clutching, his jealousy, comparative, because of that way of living, uh, Saul going after David, trying to kill David, uh, he loses the very thing he's afraid of losing. So ironic. Now, thank God there is another way to live. Thank God there is a better way for us, you and me, to live. We go to the New Testament. We're told there was a man sent from God. His name is John the Baptist. He had a message. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was his message to proclaim. And then one day John uh, John sees Jesus and he says to the people, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what happens is people start listening to Jesus and following Jesus. And then the strange thing happens. In John 3, it says, they, these are some of John's disciples, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Kind of interesting. John has disciples. Jesus has disciples. John is called Rabbi. Jesus is called Rabbi. John baptized people. Now Jesus and his followers are baptizing people. And John's disciples are watching this phenomenon. They're saying, hey, what's happening here? We used to be number one. We were the most important. Everybody was coming out to see us. But now this Jesus guy is building his movement and he's becoming more popular than you, John. And everybody's going to see him. Because you do understand, of course. That the more people who go to see you, the more important you are. That's the premise here. And they're thinking, we're your disciples. So if you're becoming less important, then we're becoming less important. You need to increase market share, John. That's what they're saying. That comparison deal goes on all the time. In all areas of life, in spiritual areas of life, a long, long time ago when I was first, uh, Holly and I first came here, we were planting this church, I I would go every year to some uh, pastor's conferences, uh, tune-ups, that type of thing. I was at a pastor's conference, and during one of the breakouts, there was a little group of us talking, uh, three of us standing there, just introducing ourselves and so, and all pastors. One of them says to the other, how's your church going? And for those of you who don't know, uh, that's pastor talk for how many people go to your church. Um, That's pastor talk for how important to you. That's pastor talk for should I even be wasting my time talking to you, you know, is what that is. So the first guy says, well, you know, we're at about 800. We're kind of hitting our goals. And, you know, how's your church doing? And 
That guy says, yeah, we're knocking on the door about a 1,000, and, you know, it's, it's going well, and I, I, I know what's coming. They're, they're about to ask me where we're at, and at that time, we, I don't know, we might have been at 125, 150, I'm not sure. Uh, we'd been meeting just a few years, and anyway, my immediate thought was, well, you know, I'll say we're at 200. That sounds better than 125 or 150 because, you know, that'll just sound better, and, and then you know how your mind works. In that very moment, I'm thinking, Really? Really? I'm going to do that? I mean, I don't even know these guys. I'm almost certainly never, ever even going to see them. Do I want to uh, see them again? Do I want to sacrifice my integrity for this? Do I want to sacrifice it for 50 lousy people adding to the number? So I said, we're about 2,000. And uh, (laughs) I mean, I figured if you're going to sacrifice your integrity, get something out of it, you know. The visitors are here thinking, did he do that? I mean, you know, (laughs) just get to know me and you'll know I did. Anyway, uh, (laughs) once upon a time, there was a phrase to describe older, bigger, more established churches. They were called uh, tall steeple churches. That was just a phrase that was used. Has anybody noticed that there are not a lot of steeples being built in the United States these days? It would be hard to combine grandiosity and irrelevance in a, more succinctly in a single phrase, tall steeple churches. John the Baptist's disciples were saying this. They were saying, we used to be a tall steeple ministry, and now everybody's going to him. John's response is unbelievable. What I want you to do as we kind of plow through this is I want you to look at the heart of John Look at the life of John and see if there's peace there. See if there's fruitfulness there. See if there's joy there. Look at what we read. It says, to this John replied, what these uh, disciples said to him. He said, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Wow, that right there is huge. Have you built a big company? Well, good for you. Do you know that a man can receive only what is given him from heaven? The humility in that statement is incredible, I think. So that's John. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That's beautiful. That joy is mine, he says. And it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. That, friends, right there, that is living with kingdom values. And that is experience, experiencing kingdom joy. Don't, don't worry about who's you know, in the eagles or the cardinals or the robins or the pigeon group. He says, I know who I am. And that begins with knowing who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. It's not me. And you know what? When it comes to this whole thing of comparing, it's good to start right there. Don't compare yourself with others, but do compare yourself with Jesus. And it's just good right at the outset of this just to to acknowledge I am not the Messiah. Would you agree? Why don't you just, if you came with someone here this morning, why don't you just tell them that right now? I am. Am not the Messiah. 
That is a helpful comparison. You see, John knew who he was not. We need to know who we are not. And then we begin to discover who, who we really are. Um, and he uses a remarkable picture. John says, I told you I am not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the groom, he says. He's using a, a Hebrew wedding analogy. There would be a, a character who had an official role in the wedding, something very much like a best man, only the job description was a little bigger. Uh, but something like the best man in our weddings. The Hebrew word for this was the shoshben. Friend of the groom is literally what it means. Friend of the groom, shoshben. And he would provide a lot of ceremonial functions like a best man. But, but then the final task of the shoshben, he would stand in front of the bridal tent or the bridal dwelling uh, where the bride would be inside at the end of the day's long festivities. And he would stand guard, literally stand guard so that nobody would get in to see the bride who wasn't supposed to get in to see the bride and it would become dark the sun would go down and he would stand there and guard until he heard the voice of the bridegroom and when he heard the sound of the groom's voice his final task was to step aside so that the groom could appropriately go into the bride and then he would have the joy of knowing I did my job it's completed I helped my friend and now the groom and the bride are together. John says, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm not the groom. The bride belongs to him. The church belongs to Jesus. She's not mine. The people aren't mine. Incredible wisdom, incredible humility, incredible sense and awareness of self. If I try to grab for the joy that belongs to him, John is saying, I will not get his joy and I will lose my own. So don't you think, he says, when other people are going to Jesus instead of me, don't think for a second that is causing me to lose my joy. My joy, he says, literally is fulfilled. I'm the friend of the groom. I am so glad the groom is here. And by the way, just an aside, as a church, you know, we want to reach every single person that we can for Jesus. I mean, we want people to know the love and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus and living in his kingdom. It's the greatest thing ever. It's the only thing that makes sense of life. And so that's one of the reasons why we bring Brett and Aaron Weston here as our church planning apprentices. They're going to be around for three years. Somebody asked me a while ago if it was going to bother me if when Brett and Aaron actually started the plant that they're going to plant if people would get up from here and go with them. And I said to them, emphatically, no way. We want and expect that to happen. We are praying that that will happen. That would be a good thing. Other churches are not our competition, not now and not ever. Thank God for every church in the Denver metro area that lifts up Jesus Christ, that clearly presents the truth about who Jesus is. Thank God. The more God breathes life into his church, the more churches that are healthy and growing, that are planted, that's a good thing. We celebrate that. Whatever the church, wherever the church, it's better for there to be more of them, proclaiming, teaching, living out of the kingdom and the kingdom values. Now, John makes this amazing statement. We read it. He says, he must become greater, I must become less, he says. What he's really saying is that my life is not centered around me. Now, think how profound that is, especially in our day. 
but probably in any day. My life is not centered in me. This is a really important thing to understand. The more my ego is at the center of my life purposes, the more miserable I will be. The more God is at the center of my life, the more Jesus is at the center of my life, the more joy-filled I can be. The more satisfied I will be. It, I know that sounds crazy, and it, it is a strange paradox. I, I admit that. But you see, when I die to my ego, and I put God at the center of my life, the greater my life becomes, the more meaning my life has, the, the bigger my world gets, the more significant uh, becomes uh, how the, the question of how I work at work or how I serve this person or how I treat my neighbor if I live my life with me not at the center but God at the center. John says he must become greater, I must become less. That is kingdom living. That is true life. We live in a crazy world where we compare ourselves constantly to others. We want to be eagles. But here's the thing. The gospel teaches us that we are each unique. We are each of us loved. We each have certain gifts, certain abilities, different from others. We each have a kingdom purpose. We each have kingdom tasks that only we put together the way we are walking with Jesus can fulfill. These are tasks assigned to us by God. And here's the really, really good news. And I mean it. Think about this. God has not asked me to be somebody else. Nor has he asked me to be better than somebody else. I don't have to be David. I don't have to be Saul. I don't have to be Brett Weston. I don't have to be Joseph. I don't have to be Tim. I just have to be me. And God actually just wants me to be me, to use my gifts, to follow my calling, to fulfill my purpose, not somebody else's. And he promises us there is great joy in that. And if we... <laughs> live in this manner with this knowledge, if we understand the gospel in this way, it is incredibly freeing. Incredibly freeing. I'll just show you how much. So in John 21, the very last chapter of the gospel of John, Jesus is restoring Peter to ministry. You remember Peter had, had uh, forsaken Jesus, had denied knowing Jesus. Jesus is recommissioning him, and he says to, to Peter, feed my sheep. And then at the very end of that, that episode, he tells Peter the kind of death that Peter's going to die. Um, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be very difficult. But, it, but Peter, in his dying, in his death, is going to give glory to God, Jesus tells Peter. And then this weird thing happens. Peter sees John, the apostle John, following behind them and says, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Comparing. What, what about him? Now, you, 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 we've kind of highlighted this at different times, but you need to know some of the backdrop here. Uh, there's a little competition that's been going on between Peter and John. John in his gospel tells us that at the Last Supper, it's, it's, I'll just quote John 13, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, next to Jesus. Now, th this is a loaded statement here. The disciple whom Jesus loved is who? It's John. It's the apostle John. Doesn't tell us that Peter is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John tells us that he's the disciple who Jesus loved. And where is this disciple seated? 
right next to Jesus. That's the seat of honor at the table, to be seated next to the main, to, to the head of the table. And then at the resurrection, we're told again in John's gospel, not in the other gospels, but in John's gospel, John and Peter race each other to the tomb. You remember this. And they have this race. Who wins? John wins. Yeah. And John reports that for us. So we know. And then after the resurrection, here in John 21, when they have gone out fishing, the disciples have gone out fishing, they see this person over there on the shore who calls out to them and tells them where to cast their nets, and they do so. And when they do, they haul up this giant catch of fish, even though prior to that they hadn't caught anything. And it's John who first recognizes that that person on the shore is Jesus. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. It's Jesus in other words, Peter doesn't recognize who it is. John recognizes who it is first. Hey, Peter, I know who it is. That's Jesus, you see. And the point is, over and over and over and over in the Gospel of John, it's John, 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 John. Peter sees John after being told about his future, and Peter asks, Lord, what about him? And I'm just reading between the lines. We don't know. You know what about John, Lord? I mean, he's like your favorite, Right? He's the disciple you love. You're probably going to make him pope, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Garbage. It's all garbage. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered, if I want John to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You see, what is that to you? What's going on in someone else's life? What God is doing in someone else's life? How God is going to work in someone else's life? What is that to you? Bottom line. You must follow me. You want to know where to focus? Right there. You must follow me. In other words, he very graciously tells Peter, Peter, if you keep your eyes on John, you are going to be one miserable person. If you keep your eyes on me, you can and will be filled with joy right up to the day you die. Stop comparing, Peter. That's the message. There is no life, only death, in constantly comparing. Constantly comparing. Be who and what you are, Peter. You must follow me. I love the fact that Jesus gives us a meal where, quite literally, we are forced to look at Jesus. Let's make our comparisons right here. Got a couple of pointers for you. You don't measure up to Jesus, neither do I. We fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners. When we come to this table, we, uh, we, we see how, how broken we are, how sinful we are, how needy we are. We don't measure up. I'm not in the eagle group, okay? But it doesn't stop there, the message at this table. We also see how incredibly valuable and loved and worthwhile we are. Because in this table, we see the one perfect individual, the Messiah, the one who we're not, who sacrificed himself for us. And that is remarkable. That is a love for us that like no one else can give us. And so when we come to this table, we are recognizing our own brokenness, but at the same time embracing just how much we are loved by Jesus himself. 
we're reminded that if we're going to make any comparisons, let's compare ourselves to him and then em- embrace the love and the forgiveness that he gives us. Let's stop comparing ourselves to each other. We are all on the same level playing field when it comes to coming to this table. All the same. We all desperately need Jesus.